Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth with you. Uh, and we are joined by our colleague, Senior Litigation Counsel, Greg Dolan, here at uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Greg, welcome back to Administrative Static. Thank you. It's good to, always good to be back. Well, so the reason we have Greg with us is because there was a decision handed down by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit uh, earlier this week on uh, September 12th. The case is Window Covering Manufacturers Association v. Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, and uh, NCLA filed an amicus brief. In fact, uh, John and Greg and I were all on the on the brief for, for NCLA, uh, and the case was brought by the folks at Mayor Brown, including Erica Jones, who is on our board of advisors. So I wanted to give Erica a shout out. She's uh, she's quite an authority on all things related uh, to the the CPSC. Uh, but, but Greg, uh, maybe I'll just start, start you off. Can you explain to our audience uh, what, uh, what, why was the Window Covering Manufacturers Association suing uh, the CPSC? Uh, maybe we'll start there. Well, you know, there were so many reasons, but the basic story <laughs> is Window Covering Manufacturers Association is a, a you know, it's a, uh, it's a trade group of various companies um, that manufacture window coverings, and it's a multi-million, if not billion-dollar business. Um, and window coverings come in two sort of varieties. One is sort of off-the-shelf, which you know, subject to one set of regulation, and one is custom designed. So for your offices, for your custom-built home, where consumers really direct what needs to be done. And a Consumer Product Safety Commission said that. Um, if you have cords on your windows covering, that may cause strangulation risk for kids who play with those cords. Right. Um, so and if it's a made window that you're ordering and you know that you don't have kids in your home, you're still not allowed to have these cords. And you might you might be an, an elderly person who can't reach up high to grab a short cord or you may otherwise or, you know, who doesn't want to. You might be somebody who doesn't want to have to get up on a ladder to, to pull a short cord on their on their windows. And here you have the agency supposedly for reasons of safety, prohibiting corded window products. Correct. But it's actually worse than that because it's not as if the industry did not realize that there is indeed a risk. And so, for example, they, they've adopted various rules. So, for example, um, they no longer, even uh, custom-made windows don't necessarily have loose cords. So they oftentimes have, you know, this loop, the continuous loop that is on tension that you can't actually wrap around your neck or your arm or anything else because it's just basically two strengths, one going up and one going down, and they're connected in a loop. They also have other safety, internal safety rules that everybody has to abide by. They're called voluntary standards, but they're really not voluntary. So anybody who wants to sell them, it's just that they're adopted not by government, but by uh, the industry itself. And this, this is just one example. Um, and yet, kind of... Manufacturers don't want to strangle their clients either? Yeah, one would think that, you know, it's a bad business model to kill off your clients or their children. 
So as it turns out uh, that they, you know, they also interested in safety. They also want to kind of make sure because, you know, they don't want to get sued and tort uh, as well. So the, the problem was not even there. Um, but the, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, using faulty data. So, if, you know, there are multiple ways how the data was faulty, but just one example. Um, they, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission used the data for the off-the-shelf window coverings to show that custom windows coverings are also dangerous. And like I said at the beginning, that those are two different types of products subject to slightly different rules, uh, manufactured by somewhat different people, installed by consumers as opposed to, you know, a professional installer. And but Consumer Product Safety Commission said none of this matters. We're just going to use data from column B and make column A and make conclusions about column B. And anybody who's done any statistical analysis or any or just generally any cause and effect analysis knows that that's wrong. And so that was one of the reasons that um, uh, Winter's Covering Association challenged the rule. And in fact, the, the panel at the D.C. Circuit, uh, Chief Judge uh, Srinivasan uh, and Circuit Judges Wilkins and, and Pan uh, decided that, quote, because the commission breached notice and comment requirements, erroneously relied on certain data in its cost-benefit analysis and selected an arbitrary effective date for the rule, we grant the WICMA's petition for review and vacate the rule. So uh, it's not just the window covering manufacturing association saying that anymore. The D.C. Circuit, and I and I must say, a, a not a not particularly business friendly panel of the D.C. Circuit uh, decided the same thing. And you know, I I when I was looking at it, we 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 briefed the structure of the CPSC, and and they which and, they did not reach, and they they said at the end, you know, there's so many problems <laughs> with this, basically <laughs> that we don't have to reach that. And I I wonder if the fact that that was there wasn't a good incentive for them to reach these other matters. You know, I, I raised that same point with my class uh, last night uh, on public interest law. The fact that I was trying to get them to understand why you might raise a constitutional issue and a statutory issue in the same you know in the same the same action. But I didn't use this example, and I and I you're, you make me think I should have. But you know, uh, Greg, what I what I found interesting that the two things that I found very interesting here was is that. The agency actually tried to say, we have all this information that we found on safety, and uh, we're not going to show you. And not only are we not going to show the window coverings or anyone else, but we're not going to show the court. I think that that is always bad, <laughs> a bad procedure when you're going up to, a, to an appellate right. court saying, we're not putting that in the record. Tough luck. We have secret bags of wisdom. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, to, uh, to, to Mark's point that there were multiple problems, and yes, unfortunately, uh, the panel didn't reach the kind of the key constitutional issue, although, of course, probably somewhat appropriately, you generally don't reach constitutional issues if you don't have to. Um, but it just shows how CPS has been kind of running off leash for quite some time, and it just shows the, uh, why our constitutional arguments that we made in this case, and we made in a case that was filed roughly at the same time in the Fifth Circuit, why they really need to be taken seriously because the Consumer Product Safety Commission has now lost in the D.C. Circuit, as Mark said, in a not particularly anti-government panel. They didn't formally lose in the Fifth Circuit, but um, they had to basically run with their tails between their legs because, um, the, because Congress basically stepped in and said that this is not 
you know, uh, this is not what we expected you to do. And so the Fifth Circuit initially stayed litigation and then dismissed uh, uh, upon the commission agreements to vacate the rule. Um, and we have another, yeah, and we have a case in the Tenth Circuit. And we have the same problems. Of course, we're raising constitutional issues, but we have the same problems where Consumer Product Safety Commission, our case is about magnets, this little high-powered magnets. Consumer Product Safety Commission has said, well, these are super dangerous because kids can swallow them and there's lots of costs associated with swallowing magnets. And what, but when I started digging at the data, I said, what are the costs? And they said, well, for example, you have to go to the ER and have imaging. And, you know, I look at it, but that's true whether or not you swallow a magnet or a dime, right? If a parent is worried that you swallowed something, they don't know what you swallowed. So they are, you know, they are going to go to the ER and have, have an imaging done. And I, only then you will figure out whether it's a magnet or something else. So CPSC kind of work, it appears that they work backwards. They come up with the result they want, such as, you know, limiting, you know, uh, how uh, windows covers can be manufactured or getting the magnets off the market and then mix and match data that doesn't actually show what they think it shows. And they hope to pull a fast one on the industry and on the courts. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And, uh, you know, the, you, you mentioned that the agency's running uh, off leash. I think that's because they're afraid of long leashes, you know, that they might get wrapped around something. <laughs> and, uh... Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, no. I, I didn't see that one coming. Okay, that was good. <laughs> well, I, you know, I jest, but when I was when I was at the agency, we, uh, you know, they were coming in making all these these claims of, of, you know, about the risks, and we said, well, what about if it's just one string, you know, coming down? It's not like this two string, or it's not. They they objected to the one long string as well, and I and I said, well, this is, isn't this just like a yo-yo? They're like, oh well, yo-yos are extremely dangerous too. And I was like, okay, now I see where you're coming from. If you're if you're in the mood to ban yo-yos, then uh, you know I'm, I'm not going to be able to see eye to eye with you on on you know where you're coming from. Right. Well, well, they say right. They, if you if you're if you're a hammer, then every problem starts looking like a nail. And um, and I, look, I understand that CPSC, whatever its structural problems may be, they're in the business of protecting consumers. But um, you know, I teach in my spare time. I teach torts. I um, and I kind of try to explain to my students that we can never hope for, or even we should hope for to achieve absolute safety because the example I always give them is that, look, I can take a product off the market today that kills thousands of people and names tens of thousands of people a year. And they're like, well, that sounds like a good idea. I'm like, okay, but that product is a car. How do you feel about this now? And they're like, well, we don't want to take the cars off the market, but that's the whole point. You have to balance. There's always costs for anything and there's benefits. And so CPSC always has this thumb on a scale, um, precisely because they were business. Like, oh, this is a dangerous product. Let's see if we can gin up data to our predetermined conclusions. So what happens now in this, uh, in this case, now that this decision uh, has been made, is it back to the drawing board for CPSC if they want to, uh, if they want to craft a rule here? It is back to the drawing board uh, for the CPSC. Uh, obviously, you know, they can, you know, the data is not, um, you know, vacate it. So if they want to actually analyze the data properly, they of course can do it, right? The court doesn't say that, well, you can't look at this information at all. It's not like uh, having a, uh, say, jury trial verdict reversed because wrong evidence was admitted, where on a retrial, you can't look at that evidence anymore. So they can go back, they can look at the same data, but they have to do proper analysis and give the weight that the data deserves, maybe lots, maybe little. Uh, they have to actually 
justify effective date of the rule. They have to justify why they're ignoring voluntary standards, which appear to be working. So maybe they'll just say it's not worth it and voluntary standards are enough. Maybe not. Maybe they'll continue pressing their case. But in the meantime, the rule is vacated and um, And, and this can operate. And we'll have to leave it there. Thanks, Greg, for joining us. And congratulations on this Amicus victory. Thank you. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and uh, I am thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Rich Samp, uh, who is fresh from oral argument in Zerami B. Bowler uh, in, on Friday. And Rich, uh, thank you. I know it's your day off, but uh, I appreciate you taking this time to discuss what happened. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit what the case is about, uh, Zerami B. Bowler. I think our, many of our listeners may know, but a recap never hurts. Well, the ABA comes up with the American Bar Association comes up with model rules that uh, uh, lawyers ought to be following, and many states adopt these rules. Unfortunately, the ABA about five or six years ago suggested a rule called 8.4G, which essentially establishes a speech code for lawyers and uh, says the kind of things that you can't say. It's it's very much of a uh, uh, content-based and viewpoint-based law that uh, uh, could not pass uh, First Amendment scrutiny if courts ever addressed it on the merits, because uh, you're not supposed to be establishing laws saying you can't say particular things. And what 8.4G says that you can't uh, say disparaging things about people based on the usual sort of suspect categories like uh, uh, sex or race or uh, gender preference or things of that sort. Uh, We filed a lawsuit challenging Connecticut's version of this law. There's another lawsuit out there that's challenging Pennsylvania's uh, version of this law. Luckily, a majority of the states refused to adopt 8.4G. They sought for what it was, a clear First Amendment violation, but uh, perhaps about seven or eight uh, states uh, generally in the Northeast have adopted the rule. Uh, Our suit was dismissed not because the court agreed with the Connecticut that what it was doing complied with the First Amendment. Rather, they said, well, why don't you wait until somebody actually uh, brings a disciplinary action against you for violating this speech call, uh, speech law, and then you can, uh, at that point, you can do your challenge. Uh, uh, the 
a case in Pennsylvania. Uh, initially, uh, the challengers won in the district court, but the Third Circuit recently agreed with our district court and said there is no standing uh, for lawyers to challenge the law until they're actually prosecuted. And, and in we fact, they, they agreed between the time we finished that the, the Third Circuit came down with that opinion after all our briefing was done, but before the oral argument. Right, right before the oral argument. And we were a little bit scared that perhaps the uh, panel of three judges on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York were, were appealing the Connecticut decision. We thought perhaps that they would be influenced by the uh, uh, decision in the Pennsylvania case. Luckily, we had our oral argument last um, uh, Friday in the Second Circuit, and we got a reasonably good reception. The court, uh, the, the question suggests that the, what the court is going to say is, well, at the very least, you ought to be able to uh, um, get into full discovery uh, to, to try to learn how uh, Connecticut intends to uh, enforce this law, because right now uh, this is basically a sort of Damocles that is hanging over the head of lawyers everywhere in Connecticut. They are are uh, basically chilled from speaking freely for fear that they uh, might be uh, prosecuted under the law. Now, if we discover at the end of the day that, well, no, Connecticut really never intends to enforce it, well, that won't be good for our lawsuit, but at least it would be um, some uh, comfort for lawyers to know that this law is a dead letter. On the other hand, if, as we suspect, uh, Connecticut makes clear that, uh, yeah, if you do say controversial things about race or gender, I mean, for example, if you address uh, uh, somebody who considers themselves transgender with the pronoun that that person prefers, um, uh, if Connecticut says that is a violation of the rule because you are dis uh, disrespecting this person, then I think very clearly we should be allowed to go ahead and, and challenge the law. And uh, if we have our case heard on the merits, there's a little question in my mind that uh, the courts will rule that this is a, a content-based law, and such laws can virtually never buy um, First Amendment scrutiny. And uh, so, uh, you know, what kind of questions did you get from the bench? Well, the uh, what the, one of the things that that uh, the judges pointed out, and we certainly agreed, was that the law in Connecticut doesn't simply uh, 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 prohibit intentional harassment or intentional discrimination uh, against uh, uh, people who are in one of these fifteen protected categories. Uh, rather, it is enough if Connecticut can show that uh, the lawyer either intended to harass or a, um, uh, they should have known that their speech would be considered harassment. Well, once you you take away the intent requirement, you're you're basically leaving it up to the whim of uh, regulators to decide what is harassment. And it was very clear from uh, the questioning that at least several members of the panel are deeply troubled by the idea of permitting uh, discipline against lawyers for their speech based on 
uh, even if if the lawyer doesn't intend to harass anybody. And that brings another issue up. I guess there's some there's some uh, wiggle room about what how this uh, this rule that affects lawyers in the practice of law, what the practice of law consists of. Um, and I think we've discussed that there's one thing when you're in court, you know, you're not allowed to call the judge names, right? We all agree on that. Right. Um, but and that's uh, court decorum and the court has to have complete control of its, of its uh, environment in order to make sure the law is enforced and that, and that uh, facts are found and all the rest of it. And that's a very old understanding of the law. You can't be calling the judge names. Um, but then uh, the practice of law isn't well-defined either. Did Was there any discussion of that? Yes, and, and that is a real problem because uh, under this rule, uh, attorneys uh, uh, can be presumably uh, subject to discipline for just about anything they say in public, and sometimes not even in public. Uh, there's one very famous case from Maryland in which uh, several attorneys were disbarred because they were on a private chat room uh, in which they uh, were uh, trading jokes that some people found racially offensive. So they didn't say anything in public, but Maryland uh, said that under their rule, uh, that if the attorneys say anything that uh, could uh, reflect badly on the legal profession and their private conversation later becomes public, that that is enough for for discipline. And, and uh, I, I agree with you that uh, when you're in court, if the judge says, for example, uh, you, the attorney, may not uh, say anything about the uh, defendant's past criminal history, and you say it anyway, well, that's not First Amendment right. That's something that basically uh, prejudices the administration of justice. And so, of course, you can be disciplined for that. But if you say things um, uh, in a private conversation with another attorney, uh, and they later complain about it, I hardly think that should be considered the practice of law, and, and it, that raises serious First Amendment problems. Yeah, and I think another reason why this rule has met resistance in a lot of states has nothing to do with free speech. Um, I'm sad to say that, but I I think it's because they know how litigious lawyers are and that these these exactly these personality clashes could lead to all kinds of complaints and tit for tat and all of this. That's exactly right. And it's not just lawyers against lawyers. A number of the cases that have come up around the country, uh, it's clients complaining about lawyers. And inevitably, when lawyers are charging a fee for their services, there will be clients who are not happy uh, with the amount that they're being charged. And so it, one of the things that, that uh, clients have been known to do in retaliation is to make uh, claims against their attorney, not that they charged too much, but maybe in private conversations with the client, they said things that uh, 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 that the client knows, well, maybe if I publicly expose that comment, that will that will be deemed uh, uh, a violation of one of these um, uh, rules that, that prohibit, say, criticism of judges. Those sorts of complaints don't seem to me to really cover the practice of law, but unfortunately, all too often, those sort of tit-for-tat 
complaints uh, do result in attorney discipline. So we've got about a minute left. And one other issue that's come up in the briefing and otherwise is that the state of Connecticut and the bar, they say they're not going to be enforcing this in a certain way or another way. You know, they, they, they've given it. Well, my question on that is, how are they bound by that? I, I don't know how anybody who's not in the court case could be bound by whatever they say in this case. Do you have any concerns about that? I mean, I, I do think that they were saying, oh, uh, they were they were basically uh, calming the mark here, saying, "Oh, it won't be any of those things. That won't happen. The court shouldn't worry about it." I mean, what is there any way to enforce what they say in court in this case anywhere else? The answer is absolutely not. And uh, if an attorney says something today based on assurance of current bar officials that what they said was permissible. That doesn't stop the new bar authority a year from now from looking back at the comment you made a year, year ago and say, well, we consider that to be harassment, right. and we're going to go after you. So, And that's it. And so uh, thank you, Rich, for being here, and uh, that's exactly right. So let's hope the uh, Second Circuit sends it back. Well, I'll let you know as soon as we